Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Inquisitive Introvert Podcast. I'm here with Dr. Hawkins. Doctor, I actually found you on Instagram. Myself working in the healthcare field on the business side, so I am not on the front lines. But I saw a post that had Black Maternal Week, um, and I thought that I wanted to speak to a Black doctor to sort of speak to these issues as it relates to Black women's health. And I came across your profile, and you seem like a pretty fun, interesting, obviously smart person. So I wanted to interview you, so I thank you for that. Thank you for having me. Oh, no problem, doctor. So I'm going to start with the cliche question, and I want to know what made you become a doctor in the first place? (laughs) That's a good question because we're all asked and we all try to avoid that very cliche answer. (laughs) But I actually have a cliche answer. I've always wanted to be a doctor. I think I began to really actually look into that and investigate and kind of move towards that in the fifth grade because Initially, I wanted to be a nurse because no one, I don't have any doctors in my family, but I have very prominent nurses in my family that do a lot um, in their communities, and that just felt good. Science and math and that going in that direction felt good for me in school, so I wanted to be a nurse, like the nurses I saw in my family. Um, and my fifth grade teacher actually said, well, why don't you want to be a doctor? You know, shoot for stars. And after that, I was like, oh, well, I never thought about being a doctor. <laughs> but literally, since the fifth grade, And that one teacher, I've had my eyes set on becoming a physician. Oh, that's awesome. Um, So, Dr. Hawkins, like how, you know, when you have that conversation with your parents, how does that go? I know parents always want their kids to be doctors and lawyers, (laughs) so were they, like, (laughs) super ecstatic, or how did they respond to it? Yes. It's funny because my mom, so my mom is in IT and my dad's an engineer, and they, I don't know, I think that they felt like I just wanted to be a nurse because my aunt was, you know, like she was the rich aunt that lived in another state and it just it was like glamorous. So I, they, I feel like initially they thought I wanted to just be like something glamorous or what I perceived to be glamorous. But in their minds, they were like, oh, no, she's going to go to Howard. She's going to be an engineer. <laughs> um, so I think they were pretty shocked when I said I wanted to be a doctor. But like I said, science was my thing. Science was wow. like my groove. Um, in school. So naturally, they supported that from that early age. And again, kind of put everything in place that I needed um, from, you know, my education and exposure and experiences to be able to kind of follow that path. So it was, I mean, I'm Jamaican and West Indian parents don't play. They were supportive. That is awesome. And, Doctor, like, I've interviewed, you know, a few doctors before, and they always tell me if you haven't broken down in med school once, you're not you're not doing med school right. So, like, how was your med school experience? Well, I went to I went to Morehouse School of Medicine. I actually went to two HBCUs. I went to Xavier for undergrad, and I went to Morehouse School of Medicine for medical school. And I had, like, an outstanding support system. So mm-hmm. I feel like I didn't get a lot of what comes with maybe being in an environment where you're one of a thousand and you're overwhelmed and it feels kind of daunting. I had study groups from heaven is what I call them. (laughs) And the support behind when the times got rough, it it made it feel not so rough. And that the celebration of the great moments, the accomplishments. I mean, we partied after every test, small <laughs> tests. Like, I mean, it was. It could have been a quiz. We were partying after that quiz. So 
Med school for me actually felt really good. It felt like one of the greatest times of my life as far as my schooling, and I've been in school for a long time. <laughs> so I can't, even, I can't even pull one of those memories, to be honest with you, that, that felt like it was a breakdown for me in med wow. school. Um, now, residency, you know, it was a different story, <laughs> but... <laughs> That was great. It was great. <laughs> oh, man, I'm glad to hear that. And, Doc, before we move into the sort of black maternal health thing, I just kind of wanted to get mm-hmm. your take on why you wanted to be a surgeon in particular and how that has how COVID-19 has affected your, your practice thus far. Oh, yeah. Okay. So surgery for me kind of happened. I've definitely felt early on I wanted to do women's health. I wanted to do and go into a field in medicine that I thought had a lot of parts to it. It had a lot of ability to help people across the spectrum of their life. Women's health to me was like from birth to death type of a field. And it also was a field where I felt like I could have a continuity of care of my patients, kind of get in on the front end and be more preventive with them, and also be very um, hands-on where the surgery came in. When I did my residency, though, and I did the obstetrics and gynecology part, I was definitely more drawn to the OR. I was more drawn to the procedural things. I liked, you know, using my hands. And I was, what I felt, it it came to me just kind of innately. So I ended up going into more surgery. I actually don't do obstetrics anymore. Stopped delivering baby a few years ago, but I went back and did a fellowship just to learn how to be, you know, a really good surgeon and give patients a lot of options, minimally invasive options and things like that. So surgery, it just is my happy place. The OR is my happy place. COVID took my happy place away (laughs) for like six weeks, which was hard. It was hard. It affected so many people economically in many, many different ways. And I got a lot initially of support because I am a physician, but I actually wasn't on the front line. I wasn't. I saw patients via telemedicine over the phone from a very safe distance. (laughs) And occasionally I went into the office if there was something urgent, because, you know, I, I still have that responsibility to my patients. So if something was going on and I felt like I needed to put my hands on them, I was going to mask up, glove up, and do so. But I wasn't there every day, and I wasn't in the OR every week like I was pre-COVID. Um, so it did, you know, it, it affected a lot of that. But I honestly try to find a light in everything. I've enjoyed a time home with my family and my husband and my children, and I've enjoyed the growth of just kind of trying to find a happy place and something else outside of medicine, outside of the OR, and I still remain very connected to my patients. I started to do on Facebook Live to talk to them about how to cope with the fact that I had to delay their surgery and, you know, maybe holistic and naturopathic things that they can do to deal with their pain and their suffering and their fibroids and their bleeding and everything else. I still felt connected to medicine through COVID mm-hmm. as well. Awesome. And, Doctor, I, like I mentioned earlier in the interview, I reached out to you because I saw that it was Black Maternal Health Week and I saw your profile and that you specialize in, in fibroids amongst other sort of pelvic pain issues. And I wanted to know, why do women, black women, have fibroids more so than other races or other ethnicities? And what sort of trends are you seeing in black maternal health in general? 
Yeah, so specifically to your question about fibroids, fibroids are very much uh, multifactorial. So it's not just Mm -hmm. one thing that causes a woman to have fibroids. And fibroids actually affect about 70% of the reproductive age women. So a lot of women have it and don't even know it. It affects Mm -hmm. black women two to three times more. And we feel like a lot of that has to do with hereditary reasons. It's just genetic for us. And then the other thing is environmental, kind of what we put into our bodies, what we put on our skins, what we put on our hair. There's been studies to look at that, the paraffins and some of the chemicals we treat our hair with. And then the other thing that's even more scientific and has had some really good research to back it is vitamin D deficiency. Our melanin actually blocks vitamin D from penetrating our system. So we end up being a lot more vitamin D deficient. And there's been a strong link that has been associated between vitamin D deficiency and fibroids. So for African-American women, we do have a higher, disproportionately higher rate of fibroids um, that run in our population. Speaking to the trends in black maternal health, I was a part of that movement that you saw on Facebook because, one, I'm an OBGYN. Even though I don't practice obstetrics anymore, I do always think it's important to stay abreast in issues that affect black women. Period. Because that's what I'm, you know, that's, that's, that's what I'm, that's what I've dedicated my life to. So I included myself in that for that main reason. And it's a problem. I mean, the disparities and what I would call the systematic racism that's behind the black maternal health numbers is a problem. Black women are three to four times more likely to die from pregnancy related complications than their white counterparts. And it's not necessarily a socioeconomical thing. You know, we like to talk about um, poverty and how that influences uh, medicine. When I was in medical school at Morehouse School of Medicine, Morehouse School of Medicine is one of those institutions that very much is about community and outreach and giving back. And like I said, primary care, they would have loved for all of us to be family medicine physicians and work in the community (laughs) for free, right? (laughs) So we studied a lot about health disparities. And one of the things that we sometimes make a easy connection to is socioeconomical problems that will kind of feed into a lot of those disparities. But we don't find that in black maternal health. We actually don't see that association strongly. I mean, you can even see that with Serena Williams and how she spoke about her experience in the hospital when she had her child. It's because black women just aren't being heard. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor. It doesn't matter if you're, you know, if, it doesn't matter where you fall on any spectrum. Black women are not being listened to. When they say, I feel short of breath, then it's looked at as a over-exaggeration. Oh, you're fine. It's okay. You know what I mean? And even black yeah. fathers that are there in support of these women are not being taken seriously. We're too dramatic and things like that. And it's become a problem that is very clear and evident now in the statistics. The rate of black maternal death approaches a third world country in this here United States of America. Yeah, it's a shocking statistic and number. Our numbers are going up when other countries' numbers are going down in maternal death. It doesn't make sense. So getting to the root cause of that is now why we're having so much discussion around it. I would say in the last five to six years, it's a big deal. I mean, there are literally boards that are put together just to look at black maternal health because it's that much of a travesty in our communities. Mm. 
my gosh. So, Doctor, like, one thing that I'm always curious about, you know, things that I've seen and, and heard in the news and stuff like that is how do we how do we solve for that? You know, like, I feel like this this country in general when it comes to racial disparities and health disparities, like, oh, we're going to talk about it and we're going to, you know, write academic papers. But, like, you know, there's only so much of that you can really do. So what can we do as a community to allow yeah. for black women to be heard at a louder frequency? Make noise. Period. <laughs> Make noise. Seriously. Make yeah. noise and educate. And a part of, so uh, so as a fibroid, what I like to call survivor now, <laughs> there are many yeah. that are still on the fibroid sufferer side of it. And that being kind of my um, niche, kind of what I do, it came out of my testimony. But I feel like initially, even on that journey for me as a physician, I should have felt fully empowered to speak up and talk about my symptoms and not be embarrassed. But I was. I suffered for a year before I decided to have surgery. And a lot of times for black women, we do do that. We want to be seen, but not necessarily heard. We don't want to make a fuss. We don't want to be labeled as a troublemaker. Mm -hmm but we have to make noise. And the other thing that we have to do is educate each other. So moms should be talking to daughters. Daughters should be talking to their friends. Friends should be using their platforms to make noise and say, look, this is what preeclampsia is. You're sitting at home with a with your, a headache and you're starting to have vision changes. You're 36 weeks pregnant. You should be delivering in a few weeks. Don't sit at home and suffer with those type of symptoms. Pick up the phone and call your doctor and make sure they're listening to you. Go get your own blood pressure cuff because these are the signs of preeclampsia. So these are the ways that we can empower each other because now you understand the symptoms that you're looking out for. You know what I mean? Right. In this here social media world, we have even more reach. We're reaching those who probably aren't going to look at the journals and the research, to your point, right, that aren't going to look at what NIH is saying about like maternal health and some of the problems that you might see in pregnancy. We're looking at the TikTok of the, yep. you know, the, the young lady that, <laughs> like, made a whole parody, right, about exactly. <laughs> We're looking at all of that. So those are ways that we can inform and educate our immediate communities about, you know, honestly, mm -hmm. things that they need to know about their health, period. May it be fibroids, may it be elevated blood pressure in pregnancy, may it be hemorrhage, may it be signs of things that are going to help prevent infant death because maternal death actually trends with infant death. So black oh, wow. babies die at a disproportionately higher rate in the first year of life. You know what I mean? They actually go hand in hand, believe it or not. So educating ourselves and educating our communities and doing things like just what you're doing right now is going to be the best way for us to make noise and start to see some change. Like that's how we can get to more people to, you know, and the woman in the hospital is going to say, oh, yeah, I remember reading about that. And I've gone through three paths in the last hour. I shouldn't be bleeding this heavy. This is not right. And I got to say something. As opposed to, oh, the doctor should have noticed it or the nurse should have noticed it. And they would say that something's wrong and something's wrong. No, no, no. <laughs> remember that TikTok you watched last week about hemorrhage and this yes. is hemorrhage. And, you, you know, speak up until you're heard. So that's the I best we can do, honestly. And, Doctor, moving in terms of solutions and fibroid removal, I know that there are different sort of operations. I think it's my myectomy or something like that that they have. I think it's Yes, my myomectomy, then they have like a more minimally invasive mm -hmm. procedure. So I just wanted to know exactly what are those procedures and what's sort of the best approach. I'm, I'm assuming it's different per person. 
Exactly. So the best approach is going to be different for every individual based on a number of things, based on their symptoms, based on their where their fibroids are. Of course, the anatomy matters, but based on the comfort and skill level of even their physician, and then most important, based on their goals. To me, most, most important is at the end of the day, what are you trying to accomplish? Are we trying to preserve fertility? Are you just trying to get some sanity and stop bleeding like a banshee? Do you want to try to prevent blood transfusions? You know what I mean? Like, what is the yeah. end goal for you as a patient? Are you just trying to get a flat stomach? Like, what what are we trying to accomplish? And so the options for more procedures, like surgeries for fibroids, vary based on that. There are, of course, medication options to slow down the bleeding, but the medications really are much more just to treat the symptoms, but not necessarily the fibroids. Even a lot of the ones that you'll read, you know, people will read on the Internet, oh, I can take drink this tea and eliminate my fibroids. There's not a lot of good substance and consistency behind that. A lot of the lifestyle changes that I promote and talk to my patients about are going to help with their symptoms, like legit, like really help decrease your bloating and the pain and crampiness of your cycle may even decrease some of your flow, but they not going to remove the fibroids. So <laughs> actually like removing the problem or stopping yeah. the problem is usually looks like some type of procedure. Um, and to be clear, not everybody needs surgery. Not everybody even needs their fibroids addressed. Fibroids are benign tumors, and fibroids can, they're not, for the most part, going to kill you. So people can have and live with fibroids and be prosperous and be happy and be oblivious to the fact that they're even there, to be honest. They can get, some a lot of people, women find out they have fibroids when they're pregnant and their first pregnancy ultrasound. So you can get pregnant with fibroids. But when they start to really wreak havoc and they're messing up, honestly, your quality of life, then you have to look a lot of times at procedures. And that can be uterine artery embolization, which is done by interventional radiologists, and they put pellets in vessels that actually stop the blood flow to the uterus and stop the fibroids from getting blood flow so the fibroids will naturally shrink on their own. But again, pros and cons to everything. We don't really recommend that for patients who desire future fertility unless they have no other options. You know what I mean? Unless okay. it's like unsafe to have surgery. And so a procedure would be safer to do than to actually go under anesthesia. The surgeries that require anesthesia, there's one called Acesta and Sonata. Those are radiofrequency ablations of fibroids. That's what you were talking about is the more minimally invasive option that's out now. It's the newest technology. So it's, you know, it was FDA, it's a, Acesta specifically was FDA approved in 2012. But those are laparoscopically done through small incisions, and what we do is put a needle in the fibroids, heat it up, and shrink the fibroids, again, naturally, and therefore help with the symptoms of bulge, you know, bloating, uh, heavy bleeding, most importantly, and anything that might the fibroid might be causing. The next one is a myomectomy. There are many ways to do myomectomies. You could do it through a good old bikini incision. You could do it laparoscopically, usually with a robot. I'm so I'm robotically trained, or you can do it what we call hysteroscopically through no incisions at all through the cervix into the actual uterine cavity. But the only way you can do that one, because that one sounds lovely. Everybody's like raising their hand. I want that one. <laughs> no incisions? What? I want that one. But you can only treat the fibroids that are inside of the cavity. So it has its limitations, right? So okay. those actually remove the fibroid. Those, that's the only surgery that's out there that actually gives you an option to remove the fibroid from the uterus and leave a healthy, you know, as healthy as it can be after having surgery <laughs> uterus. So that's the option, you know, 
usually people that want that option is because they desire fertility. So that's a myomectomy, and that's what you referred to the first. And then there is an option for what's called a hysterectomy or removing the uterus and the fibroids for those who are done with childbearing that are okay with that option of removing their uterus. And really, it's the only definitive option out there to say, I'm done with this. Um, but you wow. really have to be done. You, have to, you really have to be yeah. done with your fertility because <laughs> we can't give it back, right? Let's go on and on. Um, but some people will choose that option because fibroids can grow back. As long as you have a uterus and you have hormones, meaning that if you do uterine artery embolization, radiofrequency ablation, or myomectomy, anything short of a hysterectomy, your fibroids can go grow back. So some people are like, I don't even want to think about going through this again. I need to be done. And they usually yeah. choose a hysterectomy for that reason. Yeah. And, Dr. I, you mentioned it not too long ago, but I'm really curious to get your take on robotic surgery. You know, I've read about it in school, and there are, like, mixed opinions about it. Some doctors argue that you really kind of lose the feel of the art of surgery if you are becoming more mm-hmm. dependent on robotic technology. And other physicians are like, no, it actually enhances my performance. It's more efficient. It's more productive. It's less invasive on the patient. So I wanted to know how you feel about it and, and where do you see technology mm-hmm. going in surgery in the future? Yeah, so I'm I'm a, I'm a diehard robotic surgeon, meaning that where it fits into my practice, I use it. But I'm also, I kind of like um, on both sides of that sentiment that you just said. (laughs) I also am a laparoscopic surgeon. So I do what's called straight stick laparoscopy, where I just use plain old laparoscopic instruments to do mainly my smaller uteruses and endometriosis and adhesions, things that I actually want to feel. Because that's what the robot doesn't allow you to do is have that kind of tactile feedback where you can feel the tissue around you. So cases where I feel like I need to have that kind of finer tuned feel, I use laparoscopic instruments. So I was privileged enough to get my training for um, minimally invasive surgery when we were kind of transitioning into robotics. Although it had been there, not a lot of people had actually converted and were using it. And I actually was training during the same time that some of our most well-renowned robotic surgeons are um, were learning it. I learned robotic surgery when Dr. Dwight M. was we're learning it, and he does the most in the world now. So oh. I actually assisted him in surgeries when he was getting proctored and learning it. So <laughs> I was lucky enough to come in when I told my professors and my educators and the surgeons that were training me, look, I need to learn both. I need to learn how to do robotics, but I need to learn how to do the fundamentals of surgery. So I want to be a good laparoscopist and I want to be a good robotic surgeon. So I could do both. I mean, I still do both. I, pr- I actually make it uh, my my business to not learn the skill and art set of the straight-up laparoscopic surgery, right? And that is where the complaint is now that a lot of older doctors that didn't convert to, to robotics that know old-school surgery complain about our younger doctors who are coming up that are only learning robotics. They're like, okay, so what if the robot breaks? So I yeah. understand where that sentiment comes from, but I also agree that robotics has a place in medicine because it does enhance us. It does. You can't run from that fact. I can't do a 30 centimeter size uterus hysterectomy with straight stick laparoscopy very easily. It doesn't turn. It doesn't allow my camera to move the way I want it to move. It doesn't allow me to flex 
my instruments to have a wristed motion. So basically move my instrument like I would move my hand. Robotics gives me that. Robotics gives me a third three-dimensional view of my anatomy. And, you know, it, it allows me to do so much more than we were able to do 25, 30 years ago with surgery. So robotics has its place. It does absolutely enhance the capabilities of what we can do surgically. And the fact that we can do it through these small one centimeter or less incisions helps the patient tremendously. So we're not making big 10, 12, 14 centimeter incisions that takes them a long time to heal from that might get infected and break down, right? So robotics has its place. I kind of stand on both sides of that. Um, and I think it's because I trained in both ways. I think it's very important to know the fundamentals of medicine, but I also think it's a little bit irresponsible to it's, to know that there's a better option for patients and not either be able to offer it to them or send them to someone that can offer it to them. I have a lot of doctor colleagues that are brilliant surgeons, but they never got onto the robotics platform. But if they have a patient that's like, oh, your uterus is 25 centimeters, either I can cut you open or I can send you to Dr. Hawkins and she can do it robotically, then they allow patients to choose those options. That is That, that makes the most sense. Even if you say, oh, I'm not child, please, I'm too old for that. I'm not going <laughs> to learn robotics. That's okay. But yeah. you need to know you need to know that you need to at least tell your patients that's out there. So it has its place. I love it. I think that's where, you know, unfortunately... My husband is always like, be careful with them robots. And then he's going to need you no more. They don't learn how you do surgery. They're just going to put the robot up and put Dr. Hopkins' name in there, and that robot done learned every move you're going to make. <laughs> that robot's going to X you out. <laughs> so, who knows? Who knows? It's all right. Maybe 20 years I'll sit at my house and do my surgery. It ain't never, yeah. That's never going to happen. That's never going to happen. <laughs> you, need, you need to be there for emergencies, but... You know, hey, you know, technology is amazing. I embrace technology. I do. That is awesome. And, Doctor, I had two final questions for you. I know we are getting mm-hmm. close to the end of the interview. One question that I want to pose and that I'm always curious to get Doctor's honest opinion about, as someone mm-hmm. who is not a doctor, I feel like, you know, physicians sometimes focus too much on the chemistry or, like, aftercare of health. You know, it's always like, well, we'll write a pill for this and, you know, it's always after the fact, and I think that's a large, largely due to the way our health care system was built. But, like, in medical school, do you think that it's worth sort of embracing, you know, preventative care more, like teaching the how the body op- actually operates and functions? Like, is that Absolutely. emphasized in school now, or is it just very reactive? Uh, so it's, I, I don't know if it's, I don't know if emphasizes, it's taught. I don't know Mm -hmm. if it's emphasized per se, it's taught. There is something called osteopathic medicine. So there are doctors that actually don't have the MD behind their, as a title behind their name, but have a DO. So they're doctors of osteopathic medicine. And the difference between the MD and the DO is in exactly what you said. It's in the um, philosophy of kind of learning more about the body, how the body can help heal itself and how you can use manipulative movements or those type of techniques to help heal the body. So in osteopathic school, they learn that. Now, does every osteopathic doctor come out and do that? (laughs) Not necessarily. (laughs) But I also do know a lot of osteopathic doctors and physicians that will implement that, kind of integrate it into the way that they treat their 
because there's patients. Maybe they'll do diabetic counseling and put someone on insulin, but also teach them Reiki therapy, or they'll give them, high, you know, high blood pressure medications, but also do acupuncture or something, you know, something to help, again, kind of pull in all of those beautiful medicine knowledge that we have to help heal ourselves. So, yeah, it's, it's, I wouldn't say it's emphasized. I do think it's important. I very much talk to my patients about more holistic ways that they could treat their symptoms, like I said before, and also after we have surgery, how to try to help. You never have to come back to Dr. Hawkins again. Let's, let's <laughs> talk about lifestyle changes to make you healthier and maybe help try to prevent some of these regrowth of fibroids or inflammation in your body that feeds into endometriosis and cysts and things like that. So that's a, it's, a, it's an important part of health, period. It's, I mean, before we had robots and scopes and things like that, we had herbs in our gardens. You know what I mean? Like we had therapies and touch and pressure points. We had all of those things well before all this technology. So we have to remember to use that as well. Awesome. And my last question for you, doctor, is you have accomplished so much in so much in life, you know, professionally and personally. You have a beautiful family. You're a surgeon. Like, what else is there for you to do next? Will it be more media? Like, we'll see you on TV, radio, podcasts. Like, what do you hope for yourself for the next five to seven years? I hope to start to – two things. I hope to start to make noise, like we talked about earlier, I think that I can talk about this forever. Like this podcast could be an hour, for real. I could talk about this for two hours. I love, not like I love what I do. And so I could definitely see myself being, you know, doing more media, um, doing more PR stuff, educating more. I'm a national speaker now. I educate other physicians. Um, But my heart is in the community, so I want to be able to educate and reach more patients and I do see also the value, of course, in educating even my other professionals about things that can help their patients and help us as a community, as providers. And then the other thing that I want to do is I want to start to build legacy. So I want to start to put my stamp on the world by leaving something. I want to teach and train other physicians, especially African-American physicians, especially female African-American physicians. Not that I don't think that, you know, I'll train anybody sure, yes. that wants mm-hmm. to learn but I definitely do see that there is a disparity in our communities. And a part of that, helping that is to also input ourselves in our communities because we're going to know and embrace and understand and empathize best with ourselves, right? Because we go through some of the same afflictions. We have the same anxieties. We have the same culture and raising and background and all of that stuff. So I want to add to that number. So I want to start to train young physicians to be able to offer more minimally invasive options, more surgical options, to kind of have a different care and mindset about the way that they approach our population of women. So hopefully, I'm not going to say hopefully, that's already in the works, right? That's already (laughs) on the horizon for me. I'm going to grow. I'm going to expand and stretch myself and my practice to be able to do more and also to train up and start to build a legacy for myself. Oh, man. Well, you are already doing it, Dr. Hawkins. I learned a lot. I sincerely appreciate your service. And, of course, I'm wishing you and your family great health uh, during these sort of crazy times. But this has been an awesome interview, and I sincerely appreciate it. Oh, thank you for having me. I appreciate you even considering me for your podcast. I appreciate it. 
No problem. And take care, doctor, and I'm sure we'll speak soon. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. No problem. Bye-bye.